All right, let's talk about 1 Timothy. We're going to solve everything in the next 45 minutes. So when you walk out of here, you'll know about how to deal with men and women, how to deal with elders, how to deal with deacons, how to deal with slavery, how to deal with marriage. You'll be experts. All right. Uh, my computer's gone to sleep. There it is. All right. Let's talk about the background of Timothy. Uh, Timothy. Actually, put the slides in there backwards. Let's do that. Who wrote the book? Everyone agrees it's Paul. It's one of the few books that everyone goes, yeah, Paul wrote it. You'll see guys who argue about every other book. Almost all of them say Paul wrote this. Just in time. Uh, all right, Randall. Sure I, I have no control. You have no control. By the end of this class, Randall, you will have control. No problem. That's what Paul said. That's what Paul says. We've been walking out. Uh, this was written by Paul to Timothy, hence the name Timothy. Uh, it's written after Paul has gotten out of uh, house arrest. So he is no longer in Rome. Uh, Nero is still emperor. We know this is probably before July of AD 64. What event happens in AD 64 that Nero is known for? Burn. Burnt the city down. Nero actually didn't burn the city down. He was actually at his summer house on the coast when it happened. It's summer. If you're Is the that emperor, in Capri? what? Is that in Capri? Uh, down near Capri. Yeah, he has a very nice. He's the emperor. He's got nice places everywhere. He's got a really nice place on the coast. It's the middle of July. He's on the coast. Rome is basically wood buildings. Everyone cooks with open fire. There's no electric lights, right? You got candles. What happens when you put those things together? You catch fire. Uh, Rome burned several times. It's just they happened to put it out all the other times. July 64, two-thirds of Rome burns down. Uh, Nero paid attention to last week's book of Acts and for the first time blames the Christians, not the Jews. He does, Paul doesn't mention it in this, so we're pretty confident this is before July of 64. Uh, the city is Ephesus. Uh, one of the top ten cities in the Roman Empire, the Temple of Diana is there. That's very important when you read this book, because you have to read context. Uh, it's written to Timothy. Why? There are some problems in Ephesus. And like most books of Paul, he writes them because there are issues. Uh, the background. You need Before you interpret Timothy, you have to read the other books that are written to this area, that are written before Timothy. Galatians uh, was written probably 12 to 15 years before this to the general area. Ephesians was written two years before this to the general area of Ephesus. Colossians, two years. Philemon, two years. They were all delivered by the same guy. So that's how we know they were all written together. So, and they all talk about the same thing, which is, uh, they talk about marriage relations. They talk about salvation. Is salvation earned or is salvation a gift? Uh, they all say Paul is consistent across the board. He says salvation is a gift. You cannot earn it. And most importantly, in all the books, he talks about the fact that Jews... And Greeks are equal in God's sight. Jews are not better Christians than the Greeks. Uh, slaves or rich people are not better Christians than slaves. Men are not better Christians than women. Young are not worse Christians than old. He says you're all the same. All, all four of these books, he'll say it's the same. Everyone is the same before Christ. Everyone's the same before God. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew, Gentile, man, woman, you are saved the same way. And you're equal value to God. 
consistent among all these four. Now, you have to put that, now let's talk about Timothy. Oh, and do remember, Nero is the emperor. How old's Nero? He's probably 27. He dies in AD 68. Dies. Uh, either commits suicide, is killed, or dies a natural death, depending on who you read. I'm voting on uh, someone helped him. That's the usual way emperors went out, is that somebody helps them along who wants to be the next emperor. You know what, you know what Nero's favorite food was? No. Peacock tongues. Just think about how many peacock tongues it would take. That's how opulent the Roman, uh, the Caesars were. That's found in Suetonius. Uh, it's like eating crawdads. Uh, huh? yeah, it is. Right. I mean, that was, but that, it takes a lot of that was his favorite meal, and he would have. Just think about it. That's just amazing. I'm sorry. What? But that's that's Nero. The rich are rich, and now remember when you're talking to the church, the church has rich people. It's got freemen in the middle, and it's got slaves. So when you read this book and interpret. Understand who Paul is talking to. Uh, first, first chapter, Paul, an apostle of Christ. That's the other reason we think this is Paul writing this, because he basically says, I write this. Uh, to Timothy, my true son. Timothy was one of his church planters that traveled with him. Uh, grace, mercy, and peace. Again, grace and peace, Greek, Jewish. Peace is shalom. Uh, I urged you when I went to Macedonia. So Paul gets out of prison. We had a question last week. Did Paul actually go to, uh, to Spain like he originally thought? Nobody knows. Tradition says yes. We don't have any, any evidence that he did. We don't have any evidence that he didn't. But uh, at some point he comes back and goes through probably Corinth on to Ephesus. And then he goes up to Macedonia, which is traditional Greece. And he, and he leaves Timothy in Ephesus. And stay here in Ephesus so you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Paul spends a lot of time in Ephesus. Ephesus shows up a lot. It shows up in Acts. Uh, when he is on his way to Jerusalem, at the end of the third journey, he meets all the elders of Ephesus. And what's he tell them? Be careful about false teachers. When you read Ephesians, what's he tell them? Make sure people aren't false teachers. When you see Ephesus again in the book of Revelation, what's their problem? False teachers. In Timothy, what's their problem? False teachers. Now the question is, who is teaching false, and what are they teaching? Uh, they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love. The book of Ephesians, which he writes two years before this, says love 28 times, I think, in the book. Very central topic for Paul. Uh, love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned to meaningless talk. Who we think he's talking to here are Jews. And as we go through the book, we'll, we'll point that out. They want to be teachers of the law. When Paul says teachers of the law, he's saying Pharisees. They want to be Pharisees. Pharisees are about the law. Remember, this church is a mixed church. Jews, Greeks, rich, poor, slaves. Uh, when we were, we were in Ephesus, there is a synagogue up on the top. Like everything in the third world and in the old world, rich guys live on the top, poor guys live at the bottom, right? Because as the engineers will tell you, human excrement flows downhill. So you want to be at the top. You don't want to be at the bottom. If you go to Ephesus, there is a synagogue on the top hill of the city, which tells you the Jews had money. That's prime real estate. That's like being in New York City and being in Manhattan versus Brooklyn. So uh, there's a synagogue up top. Uh, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. 
you know, you know the statement, I am, uh, I'm often not right, but I'm never in doubt. That's what these guys are. I know what I'm teaching. Well, yeah, mostly, but I know, I know that's true. Uh, so that, so we think Paul's talking to Jewish uh, Christians who are adding on. And also remember context. Jews were uh, much more literate than the average first century person. First century literacy was about 10%, 5 to 10%. The Jews were much, much higher than that. Men, almost 100%. Women, very high. So the fact that a lot a slave, most of the slaves are illiterate. A lot of the rich guys are actually illiterate. They got rich because of family connections or what they did, not because they were literate. So they were, we actually, there's actually a, a Roman who wrote, he says, if I need something done, I just hire it done. So if I need something written down, I'll hire a Greek slave or I'll buy a Greek slave because they can write. Uh, and then what he talks about here, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. And what you see here in the numbers, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, are commandments, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 of the Ten Commandments. The other reason we think he's talking to Jews is that he's quoting the Ten Commandments. The Gentiles don't care about the Ten Commandments. They don't, you know, they don't read the Old Testament. So when, he starts, when Paul starts going Pharisee Jew, you, we're pretty sure he's talking to Jews. Uh, and so what he says is the law is made for the righteous, not for the righteous, because if you're righteous, you don't need the law, because you're not breaking the law. But for the law breakers and rebels. Uh, the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, and riches. Fourth one, for those who kill their fathers and mothers. Who is very famous in Rome that just killed his mother? Nero. A little backhanded slap at Nero. So don't kill, you know, by the way, so in your room, don't kill your, don't kill your parents here. Uh, you're breaking the law. For murderers, fifth, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, the sixth commandment. For slave traders, seventh commandment. For liars and perjurers, eighth commandment. So Paul's hitting the commandments, which would only be make sense if you're Jewish. And for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So that's Paul's entry. This is the introduction of this book. As usual, Paul, he's not mincing words. He's jumping right in and hitting at the problem he sees, which is false teaching. Any thoughts, questions? All right. All right. Now let's jump to chapter 2. I urge, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving may be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all goodliness, godliness and holiness. So he, who's he asking the Christians to pray for? Leaders. Leaders including Caesar, Nero. Remember, at this point in time, uh, Nero was a god. Everyone in the Roman Empire prayed to Caesar. You had to sacrifice. That's how, part of the way you paid your taxes. You'd go to the temple to Caesar and, pay your, and make a sacrifice, which was a tax. The Jews had a special dispensation. They were so much trouble that one of the earlier, Augusta, I think, created, said they were allowed not to pray to Caesar. But what they had to do, they had to pray to God for the health of Caesar. So they still had to pray for Caesar. They just prayed through God, not as directly to Caesar. And so they were given an exemption. Christians were under that exemption because the Romans, until about a year before this, were considered part of Judaism. So we still had the exemption that we didn't have to pray to Caesar, but we could pray for Caesar, which seems like a very small thing to us, huge thing in the first century, because it had to do with the Romans, taxation, and control, the two big things of the Roman Empire. All right. This is good and pleases God, our Savior. 
Another, this, this term savior is the Greek word that Caesar took for his title. So what Paul is saying is God is our savior. Same word, same title is what Caesar has. And so all the people who would read this letter would recognize that, that title, that God is our savior. Caesar is not our savior. So that, this is him just reminding everyone who we really worship. You don't worship Caesar, you worship God. All right, let's jump to verse 8. Therefore, I want... Men. All right, before we jump into verse 8, the Greek students. The word for men, husband, women, wives, they're all the same. Men and husbands are the same Greek word. Women and wives is the same Greek word. You interpret them contextually by how they're speaking. So, I mean, if you're speaking about a marriage ceremony and you use the word gune, which is woman or wife, you're pretty sure it's wife. So when people interpret into English, they use context to try to say, is it men or husbands? Or is it women's or wives? Some of these don't translate easily. And depending on what your background in King James, the original English translation, put everything as men. And then half of them as wives. And then some of the newer translations <coughs> try to correct that. <coughs> I, I'll free, this is where you get into trouble in this book. Is he talking to all men and all women? Or is he talking to husbands and wives? Those have totally different groups that you're talking with. And then, the, and then to throw further layering on this, contextually, men were... Adult men who'd be praying are all married because that's the norm for that society. Women who were dressed like this would all be married, you're, unless you're a widow, which we're going to get into it in chapter four. Uh, so, you, men and men and husbands, women and, and wives are almost interchangeable here because it. It would be un, it'd be very rare that you're a man this age that would be publicly praying that's not already married. And it'd be rare that's a woman dressed like this that's not already married. Average age of marriage for a man was 30. Average age of marriage for a woman was 15. Uh, also, he is talking to rich people here. I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. So he's telling you, and he's also, by the way, describing how Jews pray in synagogue. <laughs> Another reason we think this may be written for the Jewish Christians of that. that. The men stood up, they raised their hands when they prayed. If you go back to the story in, uh, I'm going to say Luke, where Jesus talks about the, 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 rich, the uh, righteous man and the Pharisee praying, not the Pharisee, the publican and the sinner praying in the temple, you see that the publican doing this, you know, look at me, I'm praying, and you see the sinner back on the side going, he can't raise his hands, he's just over there. What he's saying here, he's describing how people went about, who, with, who are adults with money, are praying. Uh, so he says, basically I want you men to pray. Uh, without anger or disputing. Basically, live your lives in such a way that you're not angry, you're not in fights while you're praying. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, which is the same way when you look in Galatians, you look in Ephesians, he talks about here's how you live your life. The Holy Spirit gives you good deeds to do because you're a Christian. Appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Rich Greek Roman women would have elaborate outfits when they went to worship. When they went, sorry, when they went to the temple. And so you would wear gold and pearls and silver so everyone would know that I'm rich. Because again, uh, first century for the Greeks and the Romans and a lot of the Jews, you had prosperity theology. If I am rich, God favors me. 
If I am poor, I've done something wrong. So if I'm going to temple, I'm putting all my good stuff on. I've got gold, I've got pearls, I've got silver. So people can see I'm rich, therefore God likes me. What he's saying here is, remember this is also a church that's made up of slaves as well as wealthy people. So the other part is you don't want to create a disparity at church. Because remember in, in Corinthians, which these guys would have had a copy of by now, he says when the rich guy comes, don't put him in the front seat. And when the poor guy comes, don't put him in the back. Don't be a respecter of persons. Worship, because what did he say in Ephesians and Galatians? We're all the same before God. We're all sinners. We're all saved by the same thing, which is Christ's birth. So, it, so women, it does not mean you can't dress nice when you come to church. But you, you, but you can't put hairstyles or gold or pearls on. So leave the pearls at home. <laughs> What did your uh, grandmother gave them to? I don't know, but see, see, that, that's you know generational wealth. See now you're. Uh, so I mean, how many of you just grew up with that? You're supposed to really wear good clothes, but not you know too fancy when you go to church. That you know that was very much. It was you always walk in that border of like how you know I always wanted to have my good stuff, but not too good. I don't want to be too proud. My the country church that my grand. Parents, when we spent the summer, my granddad had two pairs of overalls. He had the dirty one he wore during the week. He had the new pair that it went to church in. And then the next Christmas, he'd get a new pair and he'd switch them. So, but he, they were exactly the same pair, the same brand. They just he would get a new one every year. So he took that to a little of an extreme. All right, but also notice that women. The, Paul's assuming women are praying because uh, he says I also want women so he's talking about prayer here when you see Corinthians Paul talks about when, when you pray as a woman here's how I want you to dress he's talking the same thing here women are praying he just wants you to do it in a way that it's not about you it's not about your dress so Paul is saying women should pray uh, just don't it's not about the show. And remember, when you go to the temple, the temple is all the, the temple of Diana, which is Ephesus, it's all about the show. Alright. This is the verse that's like had two thousand years of controversy here. You promised to solve it. I'm gonna solve it for you. Uh, you know what's that from uh, one of the Broadway plays? Not to decide is to decide. Yeah, so. We'll find out. Now, the thing to understand is the most common uh, temple in Ephesus was the temple of Diana. The temple of Diana, all the priests were women. There were no male priests in, Di in, the, in the Diana temple. So the norm for a lot of people in Ephesus was that women were the teachers in worship. Because if you go to Diana's temple, that's who taught. The, the, the high priest was a elected office that you were in for about two years because we have a, uh, a writing saying that uh, the Roman governor's daughter had finished her two-year span as the high priestess of the temple of Diana without bringing shame on the temple. Uh, and so women, they, they were single women uh, and that they were, they were the priestess of Diana. So one thought is part of the problem Timothy's talk, Paul's talking about Timothy is Jewish women who are now Christians are used to now, they were previously silent, and now you have a cultural norm where women talk in worship, and that they may have been getting out of control. And so, which is another theme that Paul and all his books talks about, it's about self-control. Don't get out of control. All right. Hey, Jeff. Yes. So you're saying the Romans, the worship Diana, Diana, the right. The women were the, the, the priests. What were their, I mean, what, it was a pagan religion. I mean, what, it was a Greek religion, yeah, but yeah. So what? I mean, there, there you do sacrifices, you would uh, uh, 
there would, there would be teaching. And remember, think of all the Greeks, the oracles. You know, you, you would pay money for an oracle. The oracles are always women in Greek mythology and Greek history. The, the oracle of Delphi is a woman. So you'd go here, and you'd, if you have problems, you go talk to the priest at Diana. They were all women who would say, hey, yeah, this is your problem. Uh, so yeah, they, they were... So It's not like a really religious... Temple didn't sound like. I mean, it was. Well, I mean, it's the, the the Greeks. You would pick your temple. Your temple would be your society. So, I mean, whether it was Diana or, uh, I mean, the, the Greeks have twenty-seven gods, give or take a little bit. Uh, you could pick your temple, and that's kind of your society, just like your we city, do churches. Your city would have a temple. Yeah. Your main. Right. Your main. Yeah. So each. You'd have a big temple, but you have some small temples. So those guys who didn't want to go to Diana, you could go to uh, Mars or one of the other gods. And so it, that was very much like their church. Yeah, and so ritual, your rituals still like they're even though they're not religious in the sense of Christianity or Judaism, there's still rituals happening. Right. That's yeah, and so your your life revolved around whichever particular temple that you would go to. Uh, and so you you know people would say you know where you you know. Like we talk about, where do you go to church? They would, in Ephesus, say, what temple do you go to? Oh, I go to Diana. I go to Mars. I go to, and so that's kind of your, your cultural group, your, your social group. Uh, and so. It was more social probably more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it's, but it's definitely that it's the group that you were around with. A lot of it was just uh, pavement to keep them. Right. Yeah, they, they have, yeah, they have a very different view of God than we do. It's. They, appeasement, you know, don't, you don't want right. to get their attention or tick them off. Their gods are not good gods. They're, they, well, they can be good or they can be bad. And so what you do is sacrifice to stay on the good side of your God so that he would reward you. Very different than our view of God and what Paul is talking about here. Yes? When I teach world history to seventh graders, I always yeah. want them to recognize places that grew up with no revealed text from God. And that's most of the world. Right. Um, you have this system where you're in place. Like, why does why do bad things happen? You have right. to explain what happens to us later. What you know, the big human questions that every every person has have to be answered. And in the absence of a holy text, you have the best storytellers who are gonna who are gonna <laughs> yes, who are gonna, exactly. gonna present something that makes sense because it will be reasonable. And with with death and loss, natural disasters. Those are bigger than us. There must be some power that's bigger than us that's created in all of us. And so those answers um, don't maybe make sense to us, but they very much root the people in an understanding of their world. And so when Christianity comes or Judaism comes, there's a, a real opposition to the way we see the world, and, it, and it's a challenge, and it's a threat. Right, and we, and we see the world, like we talked about last week, Christians and Jews are atheists in this world. In this world. Because we don't believe in all the gods. We believe in a god. But we don't believe in all the gods, so we're considered atheists. Uh, we, don't have a, we don't have a god in our house. Virtually every other house in, in Ephesus, other than Christian houses, you'd walk in, they would have a shrine to the god, the particular god they picked. You walk in a Christian house, there's no god. Hence, atheism, no god. So we're considered atheists. Uh, if you can get your mind around that. All right. A woman should learn in quietness. Before we, the interesting part is Paul is telling women they should learn. So he's not saying you, women not learn. So he's actually raising women up tremendously in the first century. He said, yeah, you should, they should pray and they should learn. In quietness and full submission. I know, full submission is good saying we're all fired up. <laughs> he's not saying, that the word here is self-control. You control yourself. It's not that your husband submits you or men submit you. It's you control yourself. It's a self-control world. All right, and here's one that every church has thought about for literally 1,952 years. I do not permit a woman slash wife to teach or assume authority over a man slash husband. She must be quiet. I mean, how many of us grew up in a small church which meant if a boy was baptized, immediately no woman could teach his Bible class? Amen. Yeah. 
<laughs> that, by the way, is not what Paul is saying. That is not at least what Paul is saying here. Uh, part of what Paul is saying here is, uh, I think this is really husband-wife, not men-women. Uh, because Paul, again, as you see in all his writings, Paul is about reformation, not revolution. You're, he is not here to overthrow society, to create new societal norms. He is telling people, you reform your life, and by the example of your life, you influence other people. So, reformation, not revolution. And now, the other reason we think he's really talking to Jews, the next thing is a Jewish argument. The Greeks, as we're talking about, have no idea who Adam and Eve are. That's a Jewish creation story to, to the Greeks and to the Romans. According to the Greeks, Zeus created everybody. So when he goes back to Adam and Eve, we think he's really talking to the Roman, to the uh, Jews. For Adam was born first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman who was deceived became the sinner. Now, we're not going to talk about the fact that Adam was standing right next to her and that's, let her do that's this. That's an unfair sentence. Right? Yeah, that's a horrible sentence. We're going to talk to Paul about that when we get to heaven. I <laughs> uh, said, so, wait a minute. You caused all sorts of problems with that, sen that sentence. God told Adam, and he didn't tell Eve. Yeah. That's the deal. And Eve, Adam was standing right next to Eve when she's talking to the serpent, and he's like, quiet. Uh, so, yeah. There's, <laughs> so, there's a whole lot of depth in that story that's not in here. But women will be saved through childbearing. All right. Uh, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Uh, is Paul, what is Paul saying? That every woman has to have a baby? On the flat reading of that, that's what he's saying. Uh, there's three ways to look at it. The woman will be saved through childbearing, meaning having children. That's the, the direct read. The other thing, she'll be safely through childbirth. That is uh, just factually, because at this point in time, uh, there was a 10% maternal mortality with childbirth. So 10% of the women died in childbirth. So if you had 10 kids, the odds are we're not having 11. Which is also not how statistics work, but we'll talk about that. <laughs> but it sounds really good. Uh, is Paul saying you, you'll have, if you're a Christian, you'll be safety through childbirth? No, because we know from history that doesn't occur. Or is he saying you're being saved through the childbirth, which is Jesus, the Messiah? Uh, if they continue with faith, love, and holiness, right. If you continue as a follower of Christ, you'll be saved. You'll be saved just like the men are, which is through the childbirth. I think that's what he's saying here. I don't think he's talking about childbearing. Other people will tell you it will be saved if, through childbearing means if you're traditional in that culture. I don't see Paul saying that. I see him basically going back to the whole reason for the Jews, which is the Messiah. We can talk about that after class. All right, now let's talk. So, he, so after he clears up all the stuff between men and women, <laughs> he jumps into elders. Uh, and uh, here's a trustworthy saying, whoever responds to be an overseer desires a noble task. Overseer is the same word we use for presbyter, use for elder. Uh, he, he gives a list of things. So the question you have to ask, is this a checklist or is this a character description? Uh, so do you have to have everything on this or do you have to be is this defining a person who the church so Timothy because he's, he's telling Timothy to appoint elders so is this the type of person general character description or do you look at it and say you've got this 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 oh you don't have this or you can't be an elder I'm going to lean towards character description other churches have used it as a checklist. Uh, but it's a pretty good description of leadership. And then we're going to come to deacons. Uh, the word here is deaconess, uh, which in the first century was a genderless term. By third or fourth century, this becomes gendered. Uh, so when he says deaconess, 
that does not mean men or women. You, it's, again, contextual. You've got to read the context and say, what is he talking about? We know, so in the same way deacons, worthy of respect, don't drink too much. Uh, again, is this a checklist or is this a character description? I lean towards character description. Uh, and then verse 11, we have the same Greek word, gune. Is it women or wives? Uh, in the same way, this is New International Version. The women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife, which is the same word that they translate women, the verse before, uh, and manage the children household well. So he's, I think he's given a character description, and he, this is not gender, in my opinion, this is not gender restricted for deaconess. We know from the Romans' writings at the, around this time that there are female deacons of the church within probably 20 years of this time because the Romans take them prisoner and torture them. We have a letter where, where they torture them because the Christians are not going to the temple of Caesar and sacrificing. And so the Roman governor finds two deaconi who are female and tortures them to find out why they're not sacrificing to Caesar. So we're pretty sure that however you interpret this today, in the first century, in a very short order, there are men and women deacons of the church. Servant, deaconess means servant. So servants of the church. Uh, so I do not think this is a gender-restricted role, although historically that has been. Uh, part, and part of the issue is by the time that our Bible is translated to English, deacon is an official role in the Catholic Church. So in the 1500s, when the English Bible gets translated from Latin to English, <clears throat> deacon, which they just transliterated from Greek, is an official role. It's in, for those who didn't grow up Catholic, it's not a priest, but it's an employee of the church that's like, a, like I would call him a sub-priest. You're allowed to be married if you're a deacon. You'll have to be married if you're a deacon if you were married when you became a deacon. After you become a deacon, you can't go backwards and get married. But it's a, it's a person who's just under a priest that works for the church. All right, so have we cleared that up? <laughs> can, I, can I show yes. you a couple of things? Go back to the last one. In chapter 3 of Timothy, uh, I, I found this just remarkable and Clayton over probably has got a Greek text. Is it correct? Yeah. So, if you see the word, he he must manage his family. He must not be a recent convert. He must also... There are no pronouns in this chapter. Zero. Okay. Now go to the next chapter. Yeah. I mean, next, next, next verse. verse. Yeah. Um, where it says a deacon must be faithful to his wife... Uh, uh, and the same, well, that's not it. You know where it says elders should be uh, husband of one wife. Literally, in Greek, that is a one-woman man. And if you go over to chapter, is it chapter 6 here in uh, yep. Timothy, where it talks about what the women who are uh, getting the the widows. The widows going on the list. They're yes. supposed to be one Man, I mean, it, a one man, woman. Right. Same deal. It's not. It's not the way we translate. That's. It just. It has. It has variations. I would have never known that except that's John Mark Higgins. You saying more like monogamous is what they saying? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which could 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 be mm -hmm. translated a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. How it got translated like that because that was the culture when it was translated. That's how a lot of this stuff has come down. The deacons in the Catholic Church. It's come down because that's the way it was, and nobody's ever tested it. Right. And there are certain words that have baggage in English. And so you have to, part of what we do is we want to go back to the Greeks and understand the context that Paul's written in. Yes? Randall, when you said in chapter 2 that you know when it said he, 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 and he, there's no pronoun there. Right. What does it say? Anthropos, anthropos, anthropos? What it just say? is nothing. It's nothing. In social, it's subject, it's all verb. Right. Must be, must be, must right. be. Right. This right. person must be. This right. person must be. This,
So, but there's still assumptions. Right? There are still assumptions. The I mean, assumption of you start chapter three, verse one or two. The whole assumption from that point is man, because one man, woman. Right. Right. And so every every it's kind of like I, I, if I'm talking, I don't keep telling the son, but I, he needs to do this. He needs to, this is right. a continuation of the same thought. So. Points well made. But, <clears throat> yeah, and so, but so it's we you see in leadership that uh, also contextually for the time the leaders are all going to be men in Greek or Roman times because because that that's who culturally did it. Other than the fact you get into like temples of Diana, but when you look at leadership in the Roman Empire, it's all men. When you look at marriage in the Roman Empire, it's all men. Uh, when you, when a woman married, she left her family and went to the man's family, which we're about to get into some of the, the widow issues. Uh, just to throw this in, uh, th this little last part here is probably a prayer or a saying from that time. You see flesh, spirit, angels, nations, glory, world glory. So you see them high, low, high, low, high, low in this little prayer. Alright. And then it gets back into false teachers again. Uh, again, that's one of the main themes that he's right the Ephesus struggles with. Uh, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Paul's really throwing he is really throwing down now, saying, Alright, demons, that's the opposite of God. They forbid people to marry and order to and order them to abstain from certain foods. Again, which is why we think this is some of this is Judaizing teachers, because the Jews were big on clean and unclean. Uh, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Remember, all most of your food and all your meats in this era came through the temples. They were sacrificed at the temples, and then they were sold by the temple for cons consumption. The Jews had lots of problems with that. The Greeks did not. And so that's why we think there are Jews telling the Greek Christians, don't eat that, because that's not holy. Yeah, Paul told you something. I'm going to tell you the real truth that Paul didn't tell you. There's more knowledge to know than what Paul told you. All right, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Uh, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with purity. Basically, he's describing a John, the church is to be a family. This is family relations. Uh, and then he talks about widows. So obviously there's a significant problem with widows. As you might imagine, since most men were significantly older than women when they were married, and life expectancy was not what it is today, you had a lot of widows. Uh, give proper recognition the widows are really in need. If she's got children and grandchildren, they should put the religion into practice by caring for their own family. So, you know, it's not... Uh, and repay your parents and grandparents. I like that. You repay them. They raised you, so when, they need, when they're in need, you help them. Uh... Of the widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God. Uh, anyone who does not provide for the relatives, and especially for their household, is denied the faith and worse than unbeliever. Basically says you're not a Christian. And he just, <coughs> he's laying it out. Christianity is taking care of those in need. If you don't take care of the people that are related to you, forget the not people related to you, you're an unbeliever. And then no widow may be put on the list. Unless she's over 60 and has been faithful to her husband, that's that same term, she's a one-man kind of woman, and is known for her good deeds, as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the God's people, helping those in need, devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. This putting on the list, there seems to be some sort of, uh, if you're put on the list, you were kind of hired by the church, if you will. In exchange for support, you went about and did good deeds. 
younger widows don't put them on the list because they want to get married. And that's where they bring judgments on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. There seems to have been some sort of pledge to the church. If you're a younger widow and you find a nice guy, you want to get remarried, you have to break that pledge, is what Paul's saying. Uh, again, comes back again. Any, widow who, any woman who's a believer has widows in her account, she should continue to help them. Don't put them on the, on the church. If you're helping widows, continue to do that. Don't let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. If you have, again, he repeats that. So this is clearly a problem in Ephesus that people are doing this, that Paul has to repeat it multiple times in the same letter. If you got widows, take care of them. So, so is this saying that older widows essentially became, like the church would directly support them and they would kind of work for the church? That, that's what it seems to say, is that they would they'd also become deaconesses of the church. And, but supported deaconesses. So that, that's the first... Yeah, he talks elsewhere about elders are worth their hire, so you can have elders supported by the church. This is where you, you, he actually... There seems to be women widows who become deaconesses who are supported by the church to, good, to do good works. But remember, in the first century, 60 is old. 60 is not 60 today. I mean... Uh, most men probably died in the late 30s to early 40s. Women probably, last, if you survive childbirth, last about 10 years longer than that. So, I mean, 60's old. 60's not like, you know, I've got another 30 years to go. 60's like, yeah, you're, you know, you got a couple years left. We'll put you on the, we'll put you on the list. What are you dating, Probably 62. Uh, if, Paul gets, if Paul gets out of uh, jail in like 62, it's probably like 63. This is before Nero, before the fire. Uh, and again, uh, then he talks about slavery, which we want to ignore. But Paul, again, is he's, it's a reformation. It's not a revolution. If you're a slave, treat your masters full of respect. And then if you have believing masters, so you have Christians owning other Christians. And so clearly the people were disrespecting their masters because we're all Christians together, we're all even. So I don't have to do what you say. Paul says, no, you don't do that. It, you treat your master, uh, you should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and devoted to the welfare of their slaves. Again, reformation, not revolution. And remember, letter to Philemon was written just before this and delivered to this area. So they would probably have had this letter of Philemon. Paul is setting up, it's very difficult to own slaves if you're a Christian when you read these letters. Uh, and you would expect Christians to free their slaves. But if they don't, if you're a slave and you're under Christian or non-Christian, you still treat them with respect and do what they say. And you're saying your reading of that is that he didn't want to rock the boat too much. Well, he's not calling for a cultural revolution. He's calling for a personal reformation. So as a Christian, if I reform, I should look at it and say, I don't think I can own other people. I should free them. He's not calling you to go and preach to everyone in Ephesus, free your slaves. Remember Spartacus. Spartacus is burned into the Roman men. That's when the, the slaves rebelled. And so you preaching freedom of slaves is saying, I'm an I want to create a Spartacus insurrection. That gets you, as we say, about a foot shorter really quick. Uh, because the Romans will not put up with that. Uh, and then basically, again, it's talking about the false teachings in Timothy in Ephesus. And he comes down the end. A lot of people teach a false teaching or asking for money for the false teachings. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves in many griefs. So that also seems part of the problem in Ephesus, is that people are asking for money to teach things. I'm going to teach you the secret, but I need some money for you to teach me the secret. I'm going to teach the things Paul didn't teach you, but you really need to know for salvation. And that seems to be what's going on in Rome, or in uh, Ephesus at the time. And then Paul wraps up at the end. 
I command those who are rich, don't be arrogant. So he's hit marriage, he's hit wives, he's hit widows, he's hit slaves, he hits the rich. Command them to be good, be rich in good deeds, be generous and willing, willing to share. Uh, don't put your hope, put your hope in God, not in your money. So there is clearly wealth in the church, there are slaves in the church, there are some false teachers in the church, and he kind of hits this quick and dirty. So everything you need to know, slavery is all right, just don't, right? Isn't that what he says? I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, he says, but you are to treat everyone with respect and love. Uh, women, you're allowed to educate and you're allowed to pray. Just be careful how you treat. Again, how do you show yourself to the community around you? Uh, if you have money, don't flaunt your money. Don't put your faith in your money. If you have wealth, which is also the women in the second chapter, don't dress with all your money on. Have good deeds. Again, the, the wealthy have good deeds. And when you look at Galatians, you look at Ephesians, what are those good deeds? Those good deeds are the things that the Spirit leads you to do because you are saved. Just continuing with Paul's message in every one of his letters. So he's not saying you can't be rich, but he says... If you're rich, don't put your faith in it. Use that rich to help people who are not. Because what, who did you just talk about? Widows. So if you have widows in your family you have money, you support them. Don't put them on the church. If, you have, uh, if you're wealthy, don't put it all in your clothes. Don't, don't flaunt it. Use it to do good deeds. Uh, and then I think when you read Philemon, you read this, it's really hard to be a slave-owning Christian. I think you read it. But that becomes a personal decision. Paul does not push you to that, but he's really leading you down that pathway. Because again, reformation, not revolution. The church, he doesn't want the church smothered out because the Romans kill everyone because we're, we're causing revolution. He is saying, I want you to reform your life and through your life, influence those people around you in such a way that you're going to free your slaves. You're going to treat your wives with dignity. You're going to treat your employees with dignity. You're going to be honest in your all your uh, interactions with the people around you in life and in business. So that, that's Timothy. All right, we're over time. Next week, Titus, which is almost the same thing. He writes a letter at the same time, a different guy.